Have you ever seen a movie about the end times or Armageddon or something like that? We, we have images, right, of what that movie looks like, uh, the, the, the scenes that you see in a movie like that, right? There's panic, there's confusion, there's fear. Sometimes the streets are empty and the clouds are just dark and kind of gray and just ominous and everything. Other times there's just people running around in some kind of a frenzy. I mean, we kind of know what it looks like. And inevitably, before all the end time, it really reaches the end, there's usually like a, a homeless guy who's holding a cardboard sign that says the end is near. I mean, we can write the script, can't we? We've seen it. We know what that movie looks like. Uh, you know, right now we're kind of in our study of First Peter, going through First and Second Peter, our confidence series. And the reason why Peter's writing about confidence so much is because he's speaking to a church who has been mistreated, been persecuted by the Roman Empire. And so there's a lot going on, and there's a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of heartache that the early church is dealing with. And so whenever you deal with heartache and hurt, well, you're looking for the end. And so they thought that Jesus was coming at any moment to relieve them of all of this hurt and all of this heartache. And so Peter writes to encourage them to give confidence to the early church and now to build us up and to give us confidence as well. But it's interesting. Because Peter's picture of the end times looks a little bit different than what the movies do. So let's check it out. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. First Peter 4, 7 through 11, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when Peter begins writing to the church, you may remember that one of the first things he tells the church is, you're chosen by God. Okay, so he tells her, you're chosen by God. And in light of being chosen by God in an upside down world, he also tells the church, you're going to be rejected by the world a lot of times, right? To be chosen by God in an upside down world means there's going to be times where you're going to be rejected by the world. And they're feeling that, right? They're feeling Just the oppression, the persecution, the difficulty, the Roman Empire rising up against them. And so they're feeling that. And when you feel that, like we just said, you know, when there's heartache, when there's tension, when there's pain, difficulty, you want the end, right? You just want that to end. You want that to go away. That's natural. That's human nature. And there's some goodness to that, right? We we don't want to live in pain, and God doesn't cause us to live in pain forever. He's going to make all things right. And so there's a goodness, there's a hope, there's a joy about looking for the end. And that's what the church is really doing. They're looking for the end. And it's interesting because in looking for the end, what does Peter say? Well, the end of all things is at hand. All right? And so we read that now 2,000 years later and we say, well, Peter, maybe you missed that one. Okay? It's been 2,000 years and the end hasn't come yet, so maybe you missed that one. One of the things that's important to note is Peter's not the only New Testament writer to say something like that. All right, first uh, John in first John chapter two, he said that we're living in the last hour. James in James chapter five, he said that the coming of our Lord is at hand. Paul in Romans 13 says, wake up. The coming of our Lord is closer now than we first believed. Jesus himself said in Revelation 22, I'm coming soon to which John replied, amen. Come Jesus, we're ready for you. Okay, so 
Peter isn't the only New Testament writer to say this. In fact, just about every New Testament writer says this. And so now we're almost left scratching our heads like, well, what are you talking about? The end is near. The end is at hand when 2,000 years later, we're still reading it and talking about it. I think one of the things that's kind of, one of the ways it's helpful to kind of put this in perspective and understand what these New Testament writers mean as they're guided by the Holy Spirit in writing this is really a term that Paul uses seven times in his letters. It's a Greek term, oikonomia. It means uh, literally like stewardship or period of time or era or dispensation, something like that. And so when you look back at the course of history, well, you see different periods of time. You see different eras. You see different dispensations in which God has worked with humanity. And there's a lot of continuity through that the ages, but you see a little bit of discontinuity as well. For instance, the way that God worked with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall was different than the way he worked with Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. And then God chose Abraham. He gave promise to Abraham. And so now the people are living with a promise. Then God chooses uh, Moses, and he gives the law through Moses, the Mosaic law. And so now God's people, they're under the Mosaic law. And now today, Jesus Christ has come the first time, and we are living in the church age. And so that looks a little bit different than before Jesus came. We don't look forward to a coming Messiah. We look to the Messiah who's already come. So we see some continuity and some discontinuity. And after this, the Bible tells us there's going to be another age, another period of time, another dispensation when uh, God sets up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He makes all things new, new heaven, new earth. Everything is great and wonderful, all right? And so that's what's going to happen next. And so when these writers are saying, hey, these are the last times, what are they saying? This is the last era. This is the last period of time. This is the last dispensation before everything is the way God intends it to be. And so we aren't approaching the last times, the end times, we're living in them, okay, according to the scripture. We're living in them. It's just that, well, God's idea of nearness and uh, closeness and at hand, well, it's a little different than ours sometimes, right? You know, with God, a thousand years is like a day, and uh, a day is like a thousand years. So his idea of nearness and closeness is sometimes different than ours. Um, but we're living in the last days. And so one of the things that this does in the church age is, well, one of the problems we've had in the church age is there's been a lot of people in the church who then have tried to predict the day that Jesus is coming back. And so we've seen this throughout the history of the church. It actually started in Peter's day. There are people in Peter's day who were predicting, okay, I think it could be any day. And they're thinking he's going to come back. And then you fast forward in church history, and there were pastors and church leaders who were predicting uh, the year 400. There were those who predicted the year 500. There was one who predicted, um, let me see, uh, October 19th, 1533, okay? And to give you some names that you might know, uh, John Wesley, great brother, founder of the Methodist uh, denomination, he predicted the year 1836. Uh, more local, Pat Robertson, 700 Club, he predicted the year 1982. A, and I could give a whole lot of list of a whole lot more people, but there's been a lot of people who've tried to set a date. And in date setting, what has happened, well, the ch- people outside the church, the culture, and sometimes those inside the church, we look, we say, well, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of silly because, well, everybody's been wrong so far, right? Nobody's got it right. And Here's the reality. Jesus says 
that only the Father knows the day or the hour that he's going to return. When people claim to know something that not even Jesus knows, you know you're on really thin ice, okay? It's not a good idea to think that you know something that Jesus himself says he doesn't know. See, here's the thing. It's, we want to study eschatology. We want to study in time because it's in scripture. And frankly, there's a whole lot of churches. In fact, the majority of the church in America these days won't even touch in time stuff. In part, I think maybe because of uh, date setters who predicted things wrong. In part, because maybe they think, you know, it puts us out there and we see, seem like conspiracy theorists or something like that. But, you know, we just want to be faithful to Scripture. And one of the ways you're faithful to Scripture is you understand that when we study the Scripture biblically and Christianly, we understand that it's always written. Everything is written so that we would think rightly and that right thinking would produce right living. It's never just there, hey, just so you know, and you know, it doesn't really make a difference, but so you know. No, no. Everything that God gives us is on purpose so that it can help transform the way we live, so it can, live, so it can result in right living. When, when we sit back and we just try to plan out, okay, I think Jesus is coming this date, this date, and here we go, here's, here's how I've parsed everything out, and we get into date setting, it's like we're trying to plan things out for his return. Listen, God the Father doesn't need any help on the planning team, okay? He's got the planning covered. What he's wanting is a welcoming team, all right? He's wanting to tell the church, here's how you welcome the arrival, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? So be part of the welcoming team, not the planning team, all right? That's the idea. And uh, when, when, Paul, when Peter's writing here of end times, he, he says, okay, you're living in the end times, and this then is how you should live. And he gives several commands here for how the church should live in the end times. The first two, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Right? There are people in the church, and it doesn't take much, to look around and say, the world is going crazy. All right? I think most of us would look around and say, there's a whole lot of craziness and upside-downness to our world. Right? We see wars. We hear rumblings of rumors of wars. There's a pandemic not too long ago. I mean, we see natural disasters, all this kind of stuff. We talked this morning about abortion. We see the gender confusion and everything in our society. It doesn't take much to see that the world is going crazy. But in that craziness, Peter writes to the church, and he says, but you be self-controlled. Everyone else might be in a panic and fearful and worried, and it doesn't mean there's not like a godly level of concern sometimes, but you be self-controlled. Think clearly. There's a calmness to the church. There's a calmness to the people of God because we have a hope that, well, he's still in control, that none of this is catching him by surprise. Jesus tells the church, hey, the church is, uh, the world is upside down. None of this catches God by surprise. Um, and he also says you be sober-minded, and what's the opposite of being sober-minded? Well, being intoxicated, right? Being drunk-minded. And whenever you're drunk-minded, what happens? Well, you lose your faculties. You don't think as clearly. You can't communicate as clearly. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go well. No one gets smarter when they get drunk, right? Uh, so we're, we're sober-minded so that we can think clearly. So there's a calmness so that we can communicate well. This is the call to the church to give us a godly perspective of life. And it's interesting because Peter writes, he says, you live this way 
You have this type of thinking, this type of mindset, so that your prayers aren't hindered. What's he assuming? That the church is praying, right? He's assuming the church is praying. And here's what happens when you pray. Part of prayer is just surrendering control to God. Saying, God, I trust you to work in this situation because I can't. So I'm trusting you with this. I'm surrendering control of, of my life to you. All right? Listen, when you think things are in control, what happens? Well, there's a confidence. There's a peace. There's a calmness. And when you know God's in control, there's a joy. There's an optimism about life. When you think things are out of control, that nothing's in control, what happens? Well, that's when there's panic, right? That's when there's fear. Because you look and say, well, this is out of control. And I don't know who's in control. This is upside. I don't know how this is getting fixed. And that produces panic, anxiety, worry, all that kind of stuff. When we pray, it actually gives us a little bit of clarity. It actually gives us a sensitivity to how God is working in the world and a calmness, even in the midst of an upside-down world. Because we, we have this confidence that he ultimately is in control. And he's going to make all things right. In the end, he's going to make all things right. Even when we can't see it or understand it now, that's the confidence, that's the hope, that's the trust that we have. And prayer helps build that. Paul goes on to say, hey, here's how else you need to be living in the end times. Love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. That word earnestly can also be uh, translated like straining, okay? Like you're just straining to love. It was often used of athletes, a matter of fact. And so you can get a, a picture, like a mental idea of an athlete just like straining to reach the tape or an athlete straining to clear a bar, something like that. This is the picture. Peter's giving us this word picture of what it looks like to love in this way. And why do we need a word picture like that? Because this is an upside down world. And guess what? We all contribute to it because we're all sinful. We all bring our own upside downness into the world. So when you're loving someone who they're not perfect, they're still in process, right? They're still being conformed, if they're a believer, to the image of Christ. Well, they're going to sin against you. When you're in a relationship with someone, they're always going to sin against you at some point or other, right? None of us are perfect. None of us treat one another perfectly. So we sin against one another. And how do we respond? Well, Peter's saying, as the church, you respond with love. You love one another. You strain. In an upside-down world, sometimes the temptation is just to back off and just say, you know what? If I don't have to be around people, you know, it's just going to be easier. These people hurt me. They betray me. They've they've done these wrong things. If I don't have to be around them, life will be easier. And Peter says, no, you engage. Continue to love. And then he gives this statement, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And don't you know that to be true in your own life? Like when you're in a relationship with someone and you really love them and they sin against you, uh, what happens? Well, you're quick to forgive, right? Because you want that tension to go away. You, you, you want to forgive them. You want that relationship to be restored. It doesn't mean that you justify sin. It doesn't mean that you're flipping about sin or ignore it and pretend it didn't happen. No, no, you, you address it. And you, you know, you call for repentance, you repent, they repent, whatever, but there's a forgiveness and it's quick. If you don't love someone and they wrong you, what happens? Well, you hold it against them, right? There's walls that go up. There's bitterness that takes root, right? And, and now, well, now 
all that builds up. Now there's barriers. And Peter's saying, hey, it's the church. The, the, the posture of the church should be a people who love. Because love's going to cover over a multitude of sin in this upside-down world. And so this has, uh, it, with it, this whole idea of being quick to forgive and all this kind of thing, this is the posture of the church. And Peter, he gives, really, I think, a great visual for how this love gets demonstrated as he says, show hospitality without grumbling. That's kind of the next command. Show hospitality without grumbling. So he gives you the practice, hospitality, and he also gives you the posture without grumbling. You get both, right? The practice and the attitude. And they're both important, right? And we know that to be true, too. Because if you ask your kids to do something, say, hey, I need, I need you to clean the living room or whatever, and they start cleaning the living room, but they're huffing and puffing and they're complaining the whole time? That doesn't fly. At least not in my house, right? No, no. The attitude matters, right? <laughs> there should be a joy in serving, a joy in work. And sometimes, hey, we all have to check ourselves, but there's a joy to it. And so the same is true as the church when we practice hospitality for others. And as Peter's writing this in the first and second century, the early church, one thing you need to understand is as the Roman Empire is persecuting Christians, a couple things are happening during this persecution. A lot of Christians are becoming homeless because they're being unfairly taxed, they're being singled out, and they're being evicted from homes in some cases. And so a lot of church family members, well, they become homeless. And in those days, in the early church, there was not a church building where the church gathered, okay? So it wasn't just like, hey, you guys just stay at the church building. We'll figure something out. That'll be good. No, no. They met in homes, all right? That's where they met. They just met in homes. And so what this required when you have homeless church members, it requires the church family opening up their homes, oftentimes saying, hey, you can live here. You're not homeless. We've got you. Come here. We'll look after you. We care for you. We love you. And so that, that, was, that was the practice. And, and Peter saying, hey, you can't do that with grumbling, though. You can't be so frustrated. Listen, hospitality, it comes with a cost. It can grade at our emotions. It can be time-consuming. It can be costly. It's, it's, it's never like, well, oh, that didn't cost me anything. No, no, there's usually a cost to it. There's some time involved. There's some, there's some energy. There's some effort. Now, the way hospitality gets practiced in our culture today, in comparison, is usually far less, right? You, most people don't have to go to this extreme to show hospitality to people in our culture today. It happens, but it's, it's not the norm. Um, in our culture, uh, while the degree of hospitality is relatively less, the, uh, this practice of hospitality can sometimes even be tougher. Because back then it was a very communal culture, right? People gathering together and sharing things. And this was normative even, even outside the church. It was a greater um, in the church, but it was even, it even happening outside the church. Now, today in America, well, we're like rugged individualists, right? I mean, we want to think that we can take care of ourselves. We don't need anybody else. We got this. And so sometimes even receiving hospitality can be difficult for some. Right, because we, we don't want pe people to think that you know we have needs, or you know if they think we don't have it all together, we we want to show that we've got it, and so even receiving it can sometimes be difficult. But listen, it doesn't matter the culture, it doesn't matter the time. The command is still the same in all cultures at all times: practice hospitality, be a people who practice hospitality. And I can tell you, um, 
having been a recipient of hospitality from the church and having uh, practiced hospitality, you never look back and say, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, that really put me out. That was a pain. I really regret that I did that. No, when you exhibit love and you selfishly give and, and you do things, it's, it's, it brings joy. Here's the thing about living the life that God calls us to. It's the best life, right? He, he doesn't call us to do something that you look back on and say, man, that was terrible. I just hated doing that. No, once, once you do it in the power of the spirit, you look back and, you, and those are the memories oftentimes that you cherish. You say, I'm so thankful I did that. I was nervous beforehand. I didn't know if I wanted to, but then I did it, and it was great. Um, from here, it's really kind of no surprise that Peter's going to transition. He's going to start talking about spiritual gifts. And as he talks about spiritual gifts, he lets us know that, hey, everybody's gifted. All right? Nobody, nobody is like got short change and doesn't have a gift. Everybody's, got, everybody's gifted. The gifts that aren't ours, we're stewards of the gifts. So we just want to use them for the benefit of others. He gives two kinds of gifts, okay? So use your gifts for the benefit of others. He gives two kinds of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts, okay? The term for speaking, and basically these two gifts are, all, are encompassing of all the gifts, right? He's not trying to give a list of every type of spiritual gift. He's summarizing all the gifts there are because every gift can fall into either speaking or serving. And so the term used for speaking, well, it could be like preaching and teaching, but it can be just encouraging. It can be sharing a testimony. Um, any, anything along these lines. It can be one-on-one or to a group of people. The, the term is very broad. The same is true for serving. It can be uh, in front of people where people see the acts of service that you're doing. It can be behind the scenes where people have no idea what you've done, but you're still serving them and contributing to their goodness either way. And Peter says, no matter how you're serving, as you're using these spiritual gifts, depend on God right? You know, when you're speaking and God gives you opportunity to share Jesus and encourage and build up, recognize that the words that you're speaking, may they be the very words of God, depend on him. And as you're serving, don't just do it in your own strength and your own power so that people might look at you and say, wow, you're awesome, but depend on God. Depend on God as you, as you serve. And why? And then Peter answers the big why question, like, okay, why is this the focus of end times living? Why are these the commands? And he says, so that in all things, God would be glorified. Imagine that, if that was our motivation for how we live life, that God would be glorified, right? So you're in the middle of a conflict, and what if all the parties in the conflict, their motivation was, I just want to see God glorified. How how much quicker does that conflict end? Maybe as you look at needs that are out there, and your motivation is simply, I want to see God glorified. How, How many more needs get met? Maybe as a church, as we come together and we say, okay, as a church, our number one concern is that God is glorified. How does that motivate us to share the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we live, work, study, and play? See, it impacts everything. When our desire to see God glorified, as Paul would say, to see Christ, that one day Christ will be seen as all in all. When that's our goal, that's our motivation now, it just simplifies life. It actually brings a whole lot of joy to life and a whole lot of joy in living. We can look around and we can see the upside downness of the world. We can see how things are out of whack. And Peter tells us, hey, you're not just approaching the end times, you're living in them. And as the last days get laster and laster, 
Don't be surprised if confusion and chaos and panic and frenzy gets greater and greater. But the picture that Peter provides of the church in the last days, I think is much more appealing than what the world would give us. All right, so as the church, let's make this our motivation to see God be glorified in all that we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we thank you that you've kept your promises in past times so that we have great confidence that you'll keep your promise to us, your church, and that your son Jesus will come again and that he will make all things new, all things right. And God, we look forward to that day. But as we look forward to that day, God, give us strength for today that we might be uh, the messengers and ambassadors that you've called us to be. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.